0: Hi everyone, it's Melinda Garvey with the See It To Be It podcast. This week, we have another great interview with an incredible role model. Stay tuned. Hello everyone, welcome to the See It To Be It podcast. I'm your host, Melinda Garvey, the founder of On The Dot whose mission is to lead women to success through the stories and actionable advice from role models. And today we have yet another phenomenal role model. We have a woman in STEM and we love featuring women who are in the science and technology, engineering and math field, just because it's such a critical, critical field, especially for young women today and to get excited about STEM. So we're super excited to have Dr. Karen Moxon and she is a professor of bioengineering at the University of California Davis. So welcome, Dr. Moxon. We're sure excited to have you here today.
1: Great. Thank you so much. It's really a wonderful opportunity to be here, and I want to thank you
0: for that. Absolutely. Well, how I always like to start is kind of just to jump way back. When you were growing up, what was your big dream? What did you think you were going to be when you grew up, and what were your dreams?
1: So, definitely in those early years, it was a teacher. And as I got a little bit older, I realized that it was teaching, but teaching older people. So with the university really appealed to me a lot. So by the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be at a university doing research and and teaching pretty much forever. (laughs) Very good. So
0: you were guy on the straight and arrow path. What we have going on right now with all the, you know, remote learning and the homeschooling, I'm using air quotes, you know, because as parents, we're being forced to do that really just an appreciation for that calling. Of teaching and it sort of goes back to you sort of knew you loved that being able to help others and to teach others and that's really phenomenal you're doing some pretty amazing and transformative work just in neuroengineering and bioengineering and can you kind of just explain to all of us lay people sort of what that is what your work entails and what you're trying to learn about the brain
1: for sure so even from a young person it always fascinated me That your brain was made up of billions of neurons, but you could think these amazing thoughts and have all this internal understanding of the world around you. And I was especially fascinated by the fact that the same people could observe the same set of events and walk away with very different ideas of what actually had happened. And I thought, how can that be? Why is it that we don't have a perfect understanding of the world around us and what has happened? And I looked at the medical field and the medical field was sort of, as far as understanding the brain, just sort of reacting to symptoms that people had. And this was, you know, a long time ago, back in the 70s. And the biology community was sort of interested in, well, let's do more experiments. And I thought, okay, how do you get an experiment about what's going on inside your brain? And then I was sort of introduced to engineering, and I was good at math, and I liked math, and numbers were sort of a language that I could relate to, even (laughs) probably better than English grammar and all that sort of thing. So I was like, oh, engineering sounds like the right thing. And and when people described it, they said, you know, it's a practical approach. You're taking what's known in science and mathematics and you're applying it to something practical. And I just thought, this is what the brain needs. The brain really needs a practical approach where you're going to build a model, And you're going to understand how the brain works by, you know, being able to write down a set of equations and, to some extent, predict what the person's going to do next. And, you know, that's sort of what this whole field of neurotechnology or brain-machine interfaces is all about. So you could imagine there's two sides to it. One is a very practical translational side. Can we help people with neurological injuries or disease? And the other is, can we use the new technologies that we develop to better understand how the brain functions? So for early in my career, I started with sort of a translational component, which was if you have a spinal cord injury, for example, your brain is pretty much high functioning and you can think about your choice to move your limb, but the signals blocked because of that injury in the spinal cord. So if we could put electrodes on or in your brain and decode that intention to move, then we could perhaps stimulate below the level of the lesions in the spinal cord and get you to move properly or control a cursor on a computer screen or control a robot arm. And that's pretty much come to fruition over the last 20 or so years. So that's been really very exciting.
0: For example, I've seen some things with ALS patients and I guess, are they sort of thinking
1: about wanting to move. Yes, it's a very good example. ALS patients, it's been quite successful for some of them, and spinal cord injury is another group of patients that has been helped by this technology. Now, I have to say, it's still very much in its infancy, and just one more dot of sort of technology understanding is there's two main approaches. One that's non-invasive, and that is you would put electrodes on the surface of your skin, And that's great because it's non-invasive, but the quality of that signal is low, so there's not a lot of information there. So you can use it to, let's say, control the cursor on a computer screen, but it's slow and prone to errors. The other possibility is actually putting electrodes into your brain, which may sound strange, but if you think of something like Parkinson's disease, we've been putting electrodes into people's brains for a really long time. We can do it very well. There's some caveats to that, but we do have... Research projects going on now to put those electrodes in people's brains to record those signals and the quality of that signal is very high and there's a lot of information about it. So how do you want to
0: move your arm, you can kind of decode that component. Very, very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about, I know you had that passion and that desire early on to teach and to be a teacher. So when did you start getting into STEM? I know we often hear a lot about, you know, young girls, especially that sort of move away from STEM sort of in junior high and, you know, how do we sort of ignite that passion? So could you tell us a little bit about your path and your passion and what you think kind of kept you on that STEM path?
1: that's a great question and something that I even struggle with today. For me, it was always about the math and the physics. That was the language. That was the thing that I was comfortable with and I knew was the right way to do the kinds of things I wanted to do, like understand how the brain works. And you do get pushback. It was difficult at times because There weren't a lot of women, and there was an idea always along the path that, you know, well, maybe women really shouldn't be in engineering, and it's kind of a weird thing for women to be in engineering. For me personally, I just immediately dismissed it. And I was like, that makes no sense to me. I can't even like relate to you if that's your thought. It did force me to go around things. It wasn't as though I could go from high school to college to graduate school to a postdoc. I did encounter places where they were like, I'm sorry, you can't stay here. And the underlying idea was because you're a woman and women don't really It was almost like, we don't know what to do with you. (laughs) Right. That was annoying. Like, it didn't discourage me. It was just annoying. And I sort of looked at people who responded that way, like, you're completely wrong. I don't have time for this. Let me go find a space where I can do what I want to do. I encourage young women. It sounds easy for me because it just was my personality about it. But I would encourage women to keep at it. Don't let the little things get you down or deter you. It doesn't have to derail you. Yes, it's discouraging. Yes, I wasted a lot of time. You know, I had to transfer universities. I had to find people that were willing to work with a woman, which is, you know, it just yeah. wasn't like I could just go anywhere I wanted and do anything I wanted to. And I'm surprised today. I've worked with a group there in California called HTM.L, and they work with socioeconomically disadvantaged young women who have an interest in STEM. And I agreed to put sort of a panel of women who would talk to the young girls and the girls would come and ask questions. And I was just shocked and so upset that the questions were, how do I protect myself in this male-dominated world where men are really pushing me out? So these were high school kids and they felt Mm. this. They wanted to know, how do I navigate around the negativity that's coming out at me to move into this thing I really want to do because I really want to do coding. I really want to be, you know, a computer scientist. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is still going on like 30 years after I finished high school. I didn't have a good answer. I just, like, the only thing was you just have to let it roll off your back. It, that was unacceptable to some women in the group for sure. And I don't have a better answer because you can't change people's thinking like that. I, I haven't found a way to do that. Don't let it discourage you. Find someone who will support you because there's always someone who will support
0: you. You know, this drop off of, you know, girls being interested in STEM, I think sort of they talk a lot about it. It starts in, you know, middle school and then, you know, translates into high school. And what do you think are some of the main causes of that drop-off, sort of that early age? And then what can, I guess, parents maybe of young women and what needs to happen, teachers, et cetera, to keep that pipeline? Because, you know, if you look at it at its core, the see it to be it concept, right? Which is what our podcast is all about. They don't see others like them, even their peers that are doing this and they don't feel comfortable, then how are we ever going to change that narrative?
1: Right. That's a great question. You know, this idea of Feed the Pipeline has been around for a very, very long time, and somehow it's not working. And what I have seen, for the most part, is that women kind of get, it's the death of a thousand cuts, right? It's not one thing that happens. It's constantly over and over again these little things. And some of them are just sort of discouraging, like you see your male colleague get honors or awards or promotions that you're like, oh, my goodness, you know, that doesn't seem fair. I should be getting some of these myself. Why is the male colleague getting them all myself? And some of them are, you know, real in the sense of I want to have a family. How do I take time off to have children and, you know, keep competing almost full time? It was an interesting story about, at first I thought the solution was, well, if everybody had maternity leave, then this fear of hiring a woman like a postdoc or a junior faculty would go away because everybody would take the same time off. So what ended up happening was the woman would take the first three months off and take care of the baby and be up all night and doing 100% taking care of the baby. And then she would go back to work and the husband would take the next three months off when the baby was partly in daycare and partly the grandma was taking care of them and partly the baby sleeping through the night. So the male figure in the household was able to keep working, not be burdened by a lot of administrative stuff at work and move his career ahead while he was taking his three months staying home. So it didn't matter. So it was sort of like, (laughs) well, yes, everybody should take maternity leave, but this isn't really helping the situation all that much. Right. So, you know, I think the truth is like everything. We need people at the top. And you said that. And as far as I can tell, that's really going to take a concerted effort. There needs to be plans in place to help women stay like my field of academia and engineering in particular. So bioengineering is very nice because there's a lot of women. There's women who chair the departments. There's women that you see all the time. It's a very comfortable place to be. I've spent some time in some other departments and I've talked to women in other departments and it's, you know, less comfortable. They are not really made to feel welcome. So I think you have to find ways to change the culture. And I guess it has been talked about for a while, but diversity is not about, oh, we have to have different people because we should just have different people. Diversity is about when we have different people come together, things are better because we get different ideas about how to do things. And those different ideas push our science forward more. When we have different people in our group, we have an environment where everybody does better and not just a small segment of that. So I think we really need to start talking about diversity more about its benefits. The conversation seems to stop with we need a diverse group. And that's doesn't seem palatable to a lot of people. They're like, well, diversity for diversity's sake doesn't make sense to me. Right. But we now have plenty of evidence as to why diversity really makes the world a better place and provides opportunities that wouldn't have been there. So I guess I would say we really need to focus on understanding clearly what those benefits of diversity are and making it understandable to everybody else. That's one side of it. There's sure. another side. Would you like me to tell you the other side? Yes, of course. <laughs> So I do a lot with strategic planning and they get everybody in the room and they start asking questions, you know, what's important to us? What do we want? And everybody says, yes, we want more diversity. Again, the question kind of stops there. And when you get down to what should we do to improve diversity and you ask a lot of your male colleagues, especially in engineering, the answer they give most is there's nothing to do because I treat everybody the same. You know, there's nothing more to be done. I treat everybody the same. Those who make it don't make it. And I think in that answer lies the problem. When I came through, I can look back and say, there was a very round hole that I had to fit into. And if I fit into that round hole, they didn't really have a choice but to let me keep going through because they couldn't sort of push me out. So if you're more of a square peg, you're going to have trouble with that round hole and you're not going to make it through because that will be the reason they dispense with you because you didn't fit into that round hole. So when you say... I treat everybody the same, you're basically saying, I'm only letting through those people who fit through the round hole. And there's lots of ways to do engineering, there's lots of ways to do science, there's lots of ways to look at a problem that isn't through that round hole. So how do we teach those who are already in my position? Because I wouldn't even say that I'm great at this. I would say I acted like everybody else. I had to go through this to get where I am. So this is what you're supposed to do. And this is how lectures are. And this is how tests are supposed to be. And if you can, you know, get it right to the third decimal point, then you deserve to move on to the next class without really stopping to say, well, wait a second. What about all these other people who want to contribute and we're not allowing them to because we have a narrow gate on what contribution means? I don't think that's an easy question and I don't think we've answered it. But especially in the university setting, we should be able to say, okay, being an engineer and getting a degree in engineering means more than just being able to handle a small set of equations. Yeah, okay, there's some fundamental things you need to do, but let's broaden out what your contribution to engineering is and how you can go out and be an engineer and still be yourself, you know what I mean, and and make that contribution in a positive way. I don't have an answer to that yet, but I think that's the kind of conversation we just start having.
0: Well, and I think that what you're talking about at its core is what does inclusion really mean? Because, you know, you can have a diverse group of individuals, but inclusion is not treating everybody the same. Inclusion is welcoming all of the differences, the square pegs and the oval pegs and the, you know, <laughs> triangular pegs and not trying to fit them through the round hole, but actually chiseling the hole so that everybody fit. And I think that that's really what you're describing because obviously there's all this research behind having this diverse you know, group of individuals Certainly on the corporate side, make companies more profitable and more innovative. And I can imagine it's very similar in academia, but that alone doesn't work without inclusion because you have to have people's ideas feel included and their differences be embraced. And I think that that's really the key here. The interesting thing about just this whole area of STEM, you know, what I know more about is really on the corporate side, and that although corporate America is still Not so great (laughs) for women in STEM areas. I think there is this very wide eyed dawning that's happening right now and understanding. And, you know, there is a, and certainly before this pandemic that we're facing, you know, the big push was there was this huge shortage of talent and the competition. And I think that, you know, that is so important to being able to drive these real long term changes because. Again, there's this sort of dawning and understanding like, okay, if we do not make this environment better for women and other diverse individuals and figure out how to truly make them feel included and part of it, we're going to lose the race because we're not going to be able to hire people and we're going to lose that talent shortage. So, you know, my hope is sort of to your like, how is this really going to change? My hope is that that will change. And then obviously that trickle down effect to those young girls being able to see the kind of role models they need to see.
1: I like your tack there that it's inclusiveness is what we need to start understanding how we do that. And I think that's a great point. Again, you know, for me coming through, part of the reason I likely could survive was because I was fine walking through that narrow opening they gave for me. And it also left me as someone who wasn't able really to see what measures I could do to be more inclusive. So it's me as well. And I don't think we really know the answers that so well i think that's one reason why especially on university campuses it's very important we're sort of a microcosm you know we have the opportunity to study what does it mean to be inclusive and do a much better job taking that and putting it into a format that the rest of the world can understand you know we tend to learn all this stuff and then we keep it in our little sphere of learning and not get it out to the rest of the world but i think there's a lot of work to be done to understand what does it mean to be inclusive that's a very good point i like it very much.
0: Okay, so what's sort of a a go-to piece of advice that you have either gotten that has really, you know, helped your career trajectory or or that you often give sort of that? This is my go-to.
1: I really think it comes down to you have to do what you're passionate about. You know, I love my job, but there are still days when I just don't want to do it. I don't want to go in. I just don't feel like it. I need a break or whatever. And I imagine if I didn't really love what I did, this would be impossible. And I think people are not being introspective enough. I see a lot of kids, they come to their senior year and they're about to get their degree in biomedical engineering. And I say, why did you come into biomedical engineering? And how do you see yourself in the future? And they're like, I don't really know. I just sort of did it because my friend was doing it or somebody told me it would be a good thing to do. And I think, okay, you're gonna have a good education, okay? But you really need to do introspection. You really need to know What makes you happy? What do you feel good doing? And you need to do those things because it's those times in life when it's hard and things get tough and they always do. If you're doing something you're passionate about, you can plow through. If you're just sort of doing it because you don't know what else to do, it's harder to move forward. and It's harder to be successful. So I think that the idea that you should be passionate about what you're doing is the
0: most important. Absolutely. So tell us sort of what's up next for you. What's your next frontier of research and what you're doing?
1: Great. I'm glad you asked that question. So when I started out, I was very lucky that I was part of the team the very early years doing the first sort of brain machine interface. And we actually did it on a rodent model. And the rat would just think about moving this arm out and getting a drop of water and then bringing the arm back. To give itself some water and it worked and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever seen in my life to have you know an animal like that a rodent be able to do such a thing and for a long time early in my career I worked with the group at Drexel University and they had a spinal cord injury research program there and the idea was okay we know we can do this can we implement it after spinal cord injury and what does this mean and all of that And, and as we talked about a little bit earlier This is now being done in humans all over the country, still in a research setting, but it's pushing through. So then I began to want to say, well, really, what is going to be the next horizon here? I think that's modulating our cognitive state. So if you think about taking the signals out of the brain to want to move your arm and stimulating to make that action move... Suppose you're someone who makes bad decisions, gambling, for example. We're beginning to understand how the brain accumulates information to make a decision and how that can go awry, especially in certain neurological disorders. So the idea is, can we record those signals, know that the person's going to make a bad decision, and do some kind of stimulation to put them on sort of the right path or the better path to a better decision? So we sort of call this cognitive neuroengineering. And it was a big reason why I moved out here to the University of California, Davis, because they have several groups working on these kinds of problems. They have a Center for Mind and Brain, a Center for Neuroscience, and they're very interested in how do people do this and what can we do in terms of corrective action. And so that's sort of the new horizon. So cognitive neuroengineering, can we get in there and make people make better decisions? So
0: Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I so appreciate you just sharing with us just what you're involved in is very innovative and I love seeing a woman leading in this field and I know that you'll inspire a lot more young women to jump on board and push through to those STEM careers which are so critically important. You know, and I just think the the innovative mind of women needs to be part of science and a much, much bigger part, I think.
1: I think what I could just say to young women out there is have faith in yourself. If you want it, you can have it. You just have to have faith in yourself.
0: That's amazing. Well, thank you. I really, really appreciate you sharing with us, Dr. Moxon, and just wish you all the best in your future research and endeavors with the show. We'll be posting the link to your website and everything so people can follow along and check out what you're doing. But just appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the See It To Be It podcast. For more female empowerment, inspiration, and advice, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter featuring a new woman to watch each week and check out over a thousand more featured women at onthedotwoman.com. Know someone we need to feature? Reach out at onthedotwoman on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.